Well, good morning, everyone. So good to be with you today. Welcome here in the worship center. Also, uh, those of you in Nickel Hall, if you have your Bible, you may want to go to Exodus chapter 33, and there we are. We are going to get there eventually. But let me ask you the question this morning. What is the point of all this? Like, what is the point of doing church, of, of coming together Sunday morning, of singing songs, of hearing a message from the Bible? What is the point of doing all this? Sometimes as I stand here and I get the privilege of looking out over the worship center and I, I see your, your faces and I see you and, and some I know and some I don't, I have this desire that I wish I could just go out with every one of you, go for a nice coffee because I love a good latte, sit down, hear your story, and just ask you, like, what, what is it that makes you tick? What do you believe in? And do you believe in Jesus? And where do you see that taking you? And maybe you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, but it's still a belief, right? Like, you have a belief whether he exists or not, and there's something you're placing your, your, your life's trust in, your goals and dreams, and where is that taking you? As a Christian, uh, from personal experience and from conversations with people, I think that it's easy for us sometimes to get away from what really is the point of what being a follower of Jesus is all about. And sometimes we can just get off a bit or really lose our way. This morning I want to remind us that Christianity is not about Sunday morning. It's not about a killer worship set. It's not about compelling preaching. Uh, Christianity is not about a great coffee shop and social gathering and people you like. It's not about great ministry programs, a great women's program, kids program. It's not about alpha. It's not about great community groups. It's not about the things you do. It's not about the things you say. It's not about where you serve, how you serve, how long you serve. That's not the essence of Christianity. It's not about social justice. All those things are good and they're right and they're helpful and they're important. But they are not the main thing. They radiate from the main thing. And this morning as we begin a new series entitled Awe, as we focus on Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34, we're going to be reminded what's at the core of being a follower of Jesus? What's at the core of Christianity? Christianity is about the presence of God. It's knowing him, knowing who he is and having a right relationship with God. God's presence is the main thing. And when you keep the main thing, the main thing, it has the power to change your life. And as we're going to see, it has the potential to change our world. Exodus 33, 34, it's part of a story where God calls a, a man to lead, lead his people out of slavery. You're probably familiar with it. The nation of Israel, God's people, have been under bondage. They've been in, under slavery under the nation of Egypt for 400 years. And God's calling a man, he's calling a leader, to lead them out of that slavery. His name is Moses. And initially, Moses tries to do it on his own strength. And so 
he sees an Egyptian who's treating roughly an Israelite, and Moses takes it into his own hands, and he kills that Egyptian because he, he has this calling within him to lead his people to freedom. Moses' murder is discovered, word gets out, and he knows that he's got to flee for his life, and so he flees to the desert, and he's there for a while. How many of you are under 40 years of age? Yeah, and then, you know, some of you are thinking, yeah, I've lived a long time already. 40 years is a long time. Moses flees to the desert, and he's there, there for 40-some years when God comes to him and calls him and says, I want you to go back. I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to deliver my people. We read this in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 33. And there we find that Moses is a little bit reluctant. Who am I, he says, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Israel, out of e children of Israel out of Egypt? Maybe you've encountered an experience where you feel like God is asking you to do something and you feel completely unqualified. Or maybe you've been there, done that, and, and it didn't go so well the first time you tried it. You felt like a failure. It, it flopped. It didn't work. And you just don't want to go there. Moses is reluctant. He says, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But listen to God's reply. But I will be with you. Here's the difference, Moses. I am going to be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. On this very place where I'm calling you, you're going to see that I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to bring that nation out through you and you're going to come to this mountain and you're going to worship here in this place. As you read on in the story, you discover that God keeps his promises. And through Moses, he works these incredible signs and wonders and miracles. And it's not easy, though, because Pharaoh resists. Uh, Moses' leadership is challenged, but, but he continues to be faithful with God. And over time, the children of Israel are released from the nation of Egypt. They go by way of miracle through the Red Sea as God splits the seas. They walk through it. And God keeps his promises, and he brings the nation of Israel right to this place, to the mountain and we read there again in, in Exodus chapter, um, sorry, chapter 19, where God tells them this. Now, therefore, if you will keep indeed, uh, indeed obey my, sorry, Exodus chapter 29, I skipped to the wrong one. Exodus chapter 29, he says, I will be, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord your God. God brought them out of the land of Egypt to this end, to this purpose, that I might dwell among them. The presence of God that we're talking about this morning being the main thing, the presence of God both delivered the children of Israel and was the point that God was bringing them to. It was the means and the goal that they would come to a place where God would bring them, that he would dwell among them. God would be in their midst. How beautiful was that? God wanted to be in the midst of his people. Christianity is all about the presence of God. 
It's knowing who he is, knowing God, having a right relationship with him. God's presence is the main thing. So God makes a covenant at this place with his people. He says to him, look, I want to live with you. I want to be with you. I want to have this relationship with you. I want to walk with you. So here's how it's going to work. And he, he gives through Moses a bunch of guidelines for them to, to, uh, to walk in relationship with God so that he would be among them. And included in those guidelines was that Israel was to build a tabernacle. This tabernacle was to be the place especially where God's presence would be manifest to the people. See, Israel understood that, that, like, God's everywhere, right? God's presence is everywhere. There's no place where God does not exist. There's a theological word for that. We call that omnipresent. But Israel also understood there was a way in which God's presence was made local. They called it his manifest presence. It's local. It's experiential. It's, it's tangible. And it's awesome. And when that presence of God is made visible and it's made known and it's done so in, in a great revelation, it is both scary and awesome. And Israel had made to know this. They saw it up front, up close. Moses going up on a mountain and there, you know, the, the dark cloud that surrounded the mountain and thunder and lightning and a voice of God. The people would hear that and a trumpet sound I mean, this is, uh, this is goosebump, hair stand on its end, chilling, awesome. The manifest presence of God. And Israel had seen it. And God is telling them, I want to make my presence dwell among you. So I'm making a covenant with you. And the nation of Israel says, yeah, yeah, let's do it. God says, if you will obey me, if you'll keep my commandments, if you'll do what I tell you to do, I'm going to dwell in your midst. And Israel responds by saying, yes, yes, all that you say and all that you do, we're going to do it. We want to be part of it. So having responded in such a way, Moses goes back on the, up on the mountain. The people don't know how long he's going to be gone. He's gone for a day. A day turns into a week. A week turns into weeks. Turns into several weeks. Moses is gone for a long time and the, and the people are perplexed. They don't know what to do in this uncertainty. And so they compel Aaron to make a false god, a golden calf. And they begin to worship it and proclaim that it brought them out of the nation of Israel. They commit spiritual adultery. Having just said the month previously, yes, yes, Lord, we will obey. We want to live in a covenant relationship with you. They break it all within 40 days. And God is thinking he's going to maybe scrap this nation. We read the story. Moses intercedes. So the nation will be saved, but people are judged. Many die. And this is the point that we're brought to now as we begin to enter into Exodus chapter 33. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
Verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Israel is going to get what they want. God is going to keep his promise. He's going to give them the promised land, which he had promised a long time ago, generations after generations ago. God promised them this land flowing with milk and honey. That means there's going to be produce and agriculture. It's going to be, it's going to be a place of flourishing. God's going to give that to them, but, yeah, he says, I'm not going. I'll send a messenger, but I'm not going. This morning as you sit here, what... What do you think about when you arrive at that place in your mind of satisfaction? That place where what you dream and what you hope for, like you attain it. What, what does that picture look like for you? What, what is that place of satisfaction? And my guess would be that even today as you think about that and whether it's really conscious or subconscious, you know, how you spend your time, how you spend your money is reflected in the pursuit of that and satisfaction, whatever that picture might be. Israel has heard about this promised land for generations. They're going to get it. They are going to live in a place of abundance. Like it's going to be rich. And they are going to live in a place where they're going to be free from their enemies. God's going to take care of that. To a nation that's been enslaved for 400 years, like this is good. Like this is so good. Just one thing. Just that one main thing. They'll have all the stuff, but they won't have God. They'll have some of the things they dreamed about, but God won't be part of it. So people consider this, of course, this is tragic to them. We read in verse 4, when the people heard about this disastrous Word They mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. The people realized what God was saying to them was, was the most tragic thing they could think of. More tragic than not entering the promised land would not to be have God and his manifest presence among them. Sometimes you, you don't appreciate what you really have until you're threatened to lose it. You don't appreciate your health until you've got a diagnosis that indicates maybe you might lose it. And all of a sudden you realize how valuable this possession you have is. The, the nation of Israel is realizing with the threat of, of God's presence being taken away just how valuable this really is and it's tragic in their sight. Sometimes in my conversations with people and talking about God and relationship with God and God's presence, um, people are all across the spectrum when it comes to experiencing God and experiencing his presence. Some people can tell you of, of many, many times and even what feels like an ongoing, real current, present relationship with God where they feel like they are just talking with God all the time and God's talking to them and it's rich and and God is doing things through their life. They're seeing the evidence of God's manifest presence, local, around them. 
As they read their Bible, they're experiencing God speak to them, revealing truth to them, and their understanding of God and their relationship with him is growing. I love those kind of conversations. Sometimes have conversations with with people that have no idea what it even means to experience God. And yes, they, they can... They're going through some of the motions, but that there's no, there's no recount, there's no recall of, of experiencing God in a tangible way where I feel like he's alive in my life and I'm walking with him in a way like that. That would be tragic. That would be tragic because as we read the scripture, God's manifest presence, God among us, us experiencing God, is what it's all about. God wants us to know him. He wants us to experience him. He wants us to live as if he is living with us, walking with us, moment by moment, day by day. This is what God is after with his people Israel. This is what God is after in his relationship with us. We see from this scripture, though, there, there's two things at play that have very much an impact on our experience of God and our relationship with him and the manifest presence of God in our lives. Sin separates, seeking connects. The sin of the people had made it so that a God said, if I walk among you, like, I'm going to consume you. Like, their sin was so great that they couldn't be in that close relationship with God because sin separates. We see that right from the beginning of the story. Adam and Eve created to walk in intimate relationship with God, close fellowship, and what happens? They decide to sin. That is, they decide to rebel against God's way, his truth, to do things their way instead of God's way. And the result of that is separation. Sin separates. We see that in the Garden of Eden. We see that here in the story in Exodus. Because of their sin, God says, I can't go up with you. Sin separates, but seeking connects. We look on in Exodus chapter 33, verse 7. It says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And listen to this. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. So God had given instruction for a a beautiful tabernacle in which he was going to meet his people, but that has not yet been constructed. So Moses sets up a temporary tent outside the camp of the people. Now remember, there's over a million people in this camp. So to go outside of the camp means you had to walk quite a ways. It'd be inconvenient. You had to go out into the desert. But there in that place that Moses Moses set up, it says that anyone could go. And Moses called it the tent of meeting. Why? Because it was the place where God would meet with his people. Seeking brought connection and And maybe those people met with God as Moses mediated. We don't know that for sure. But the story now focuses in particular on Moses meeting with God. And it says when Moses rose up and he went out to that tent of meeting, the people would rise up. Because when Moses went out there, they would see a little pillar of a cloud would come down where Moses met with God there in that place. And it says there in that place, God would speak to Moses And face to face, 
This is obviously a, a, a not to be taken literally as we're going to see later. But what it means is God spoke to Moses as an intimate friend in that place of meeting. There's one conversation in particular that, that the writer brings to our attention that Moses has there with God. And it says that when Moses spoke to God in verse 13... He said to him, see, you, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please now show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. As great as Moses has known God, he wants to know him more. And we're going to discover that as we walk through this series. Knowing God to a deeper level through Moses' encounter with God. But I want you to see that in this moment, in this story that the writer recounts, as Moses speaks to God in this meeting place at the tent on a personal level, Moses intercedes for himself, but not just for himself. He intercedes for the people of God for the main thing, that they might walk in his presence. And how does God respond? Verse 14. He says, my presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, God, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses understood it was the presence of God that made all the difference. It was the presence of God that made Israel distinct. Despite all the other things that were distinct of Israel, the, the food they ate, their, their uh the way they, they managed their relationships, of all those things, the thing that was to be distinct among them was this, that God's presence was demonstrated in, among, and through them. And the Lord says to Moses, this very thing that I have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. See what this story shows us. Sin separates, but seeking connects. The story of Moses is a glimpse of a greater story of a greater person named Jesus who so sought the will of God that he took care of the problem of sin and its separation. In his obedience as he sought the will of God, he went to the cross, he laid down his life, and in laying down his life because there was no sin in him, the sin of the world was placed on him. He took upon himself the judgment, the punishment for that sin, but rose from the dead, alive, defeating, conquering Satan, sin, and death, so that those who believe in him could be forgiven from all their sins, have no reason for, for ever being separated from God. But it doesn't just end there with forgiveness. Notice what Jesus has secured for each and every believer who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. He secures the presence of God in their life. Because of Jesus' resurrection, he pours out the Spirit, and we are told, we now, each and every individual, every person who believes, who puts their faith and trust in Jesus, he's their God, 
Every one of those individuals. So if you're here this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus, you are, you are to know that you are the temple of the living God. Did you know that this morning? You are to be the personal meeting place of the presence of God. And as God spoke with Moses face to face intimately, so God wants to have that kind of relationship with you. And as you as an individual temple of the presence of God, you come and you gather with other believers in worship and you gather around the name and person of Jesus Christ. We collectively then are to be the temple where God's presence is made manifest among us. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, sin separates, yes, but seeking connects. And Jesus has made the connection for us so that every person can live a life where their sins are taken care of in Jesus. And as they go on following God and they, 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 we do mess up and we do sin, we can confess those sins, we can be forgiven and cleansed, and then we come to God and we seek him and we experience the manifest presence of God because sin separates but seeking connects. We see this in, uh, illustrated in Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, it talks about us being the temple of God. It says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? He's speaking to Christians. He says, whatever you do, don't desire, don't place in your mind something that has greater satisfaction than God should have in your life. Because the Bible is teaching us, it's showing us that there's nothing that can fulfill your life. Your, your yearnings will not be fulfilled in anything but a relationship with God. That's the point. That's the meaning. That's where the satisfaction is. So what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Don't be a worshiper of anything else. Don't be a desirer of anything else. For we, believers in Jesus Christ, we are the temple of the living God, let that sink in for a moment. We are the temple of the God who created this Fraser Valley. We are the temple of the living God who created this world, put everything in its place and, and keeps it going. We are the temple of the omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, everywhere present, all-powerful God. You and I are the meeting place of that God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them. Where have we heard that language before? And walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, Paul is telling us, here's how you live this out now. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. In other words, have nothing to do with sin. Because sin separates. Put that away from you. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. How do we experience the presence of God? How do we walk in the, the manifest presence, the relationship, tangible, experiential presence of God in our lives and in our, in our church? As we separate ourselves from sin. And when we sin, we turn to God and we confess it. But we move so beyond that to the place where we run to God and we're seeking him as Moses did. As Moses shows us in conversation 
We seek God in prayer. Anyone could go. Anyone could go to that tent of meeting. And today, here we are, and anyone, everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ can meet with God because you are that dwelling place. You are that place where God meets with you. So are we sinning or are we seeking? Our direction so much makes a difference as to our experience of what God wants for us in experiencing his presence. And could we be the kind of people that not just seek God for ourselves, but seek God as Moses did for the people around us? Could we be the kind of people that will get into conversation with God and say, God, our world needs to know you. Our world needs to experience you. So I was preparing for this message. I uh, ran across a story that I've heard before that's inspired me. And just reading it inspires me again. It's a story that happened in the United States and New York City of all places in the 1800s. And I think it was July 1st, 1857. A man was called to be part of a church in downtown New York that was dying. Uh, It was fledgling. People were moving out to the nicer suburbs. That's a pretty common story even in our cities today. And they hired this man to, this church hired this man, maybe as sort of a last gasp to see if we can inject some life into our church. And uh, his role was to go around visiting people, inviting them to church, and hopefully that would work. It really didn't. But this man began to uh, think about prayer and he thought I bet business people would be willing to spend some time in prayer in their lunch hour and so he he uh, he made it known that he was going to start a prayer meeting that would go basically from noon till one o'clock business people could come if you could come for 10 minutes that would be great if you could come for the full hour even better but we're just going to pray we're going to seek God because seeking God what does it do connects us to God His name was Jeremy Lamphere. And on that first day, he waited, I think it was in the basement of the church, 12 o'clock, 12.10, and nobody was there. 12.10, 20, no one showed up. 12.30, he heard the first footsteps come down to, to pray with him. By the end of that hour, there were six people that prayed together that first prayer meeting in New York. The next week there were 40. And it's an amazing story what happened from there. They began not only to meet uh, once a week. By October they were meeting weekly. I think eventually there were some 10,000 people that were praying on a regular basis. And as other places in America and Canada and beyond began to hear about this, it sparked prayer in other places. People would come to the prayer meeting, uh, coming in one way, going out another. There's a story of a man who was going to murder somebody and commit suicide, found himself in that prayer meeting, radically repented of his sin, changed life. And it went on and on and on. The quote about the impact of this life and and this prayer meeting of Jerry Lanfer, a previous one, This, thus the small prayer meeting of Jerry Lamphere on this day to the third great 
It, it spawned the Third Great Awakening. This was the first revival beginning in America with a worldwide impact. The revival spread to Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, Europe, South Africa, India, Australia, and the Pacific Islands. They figured the result of this was literally millions of people coming to a newfound faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because one person said, I'm going to seek God and I'm going to invite other people to do it with me. Sin separates, seeking connects. We are the temple of the living God called to be a place of meeting. And as we seek him, we are going to encounter him because that's what God wants. And as we seek him, not just for ourselves, but for other people, God loves to hear that prayer. And we'll be at work to work in our, our families, to work in our cities, to work in our nation, to work in our world, because God wants to work in response to the seeking, in response to the prayers of his people. Will you be one of those? Will you be one of those people that will seek God? Will you be one of those that will say, you know what, some of these things, they're hindering my life, they're getting in the way. I'm going to put them aside so I can intentionally make room to seek God. Will you be one of those people? Maybe for you it means not doing something. Maybe for you it means just, I'm going to start, you know what, I got, I got, no, I got no places of connection with God. So if you were with somebody and you ask them, let's say I'm with a friend and I ask him, how's your relationship with your, your spouse? And he says, it's horrible. I, I don't feel close to my spouse at all. And, and I begin to ask him about, well, tell me about some of the things you do. What are some of your habits? And he says, well, you know, I, I get home from work. I'm really tired. So I eat, I eat and then I just sit in front of the TV and I got the clicker going. I offend my wife. Do you, do you, I ask him, do you apologize to her? Do you say sorry? No, I mean, she knows I love her. No time, no communication, no intimacy. You don't feel close to your spouse. Well, it's the same way in our relationship with God. When we give him opportunity, when we spend time with him, when we say sorry, when we've done things that we know are against him and we decide not to do those things anymore, that's seeking him. And we place ourselves in a place where God says, yes, I want to show, I want to reveal myself to you. I want you to know me more. We do that for ourselves and we do that for others in prayer and God comes and things change. This is what Christianity is about. This is the point. This is the main thing. Knowing God, knowing who he is, being in a right relationship with him. God's presence in your life. God's presence in our lives as the family of God. Father, this morning, I want to thank you that you loved us so much that you made access into your presence possible through your son, Jesus. Lord, I, I thank you. You didn't just want to forgive us and take care of our sin, Lord, but you, you did that so that we could be in this close relationship with you. And I'm praying for everyone in this room, Lord, whatever place, whatever stage of relationship they're at with you, Lord, I pray, God, that your spirit would help us and move us to a place of greater intimacy, of greater knowing you, God, for ourselves and that satisfaction, that fulfillment, Lord, but also for those around us. 
That your presence, Lord, would so radiate from us. It would, it would show us to be so distinct. It would even cause curiosity in people around us. What is it that you've got? It's not about us, Lord. It's you. It's the presence of Jesus. We pray that for our lives. We pray that for this church. We pray that for our city and for our world. Glorify your name, Lord, by revealing yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.